Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Are you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear. Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content, but their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months. To learn more, check out the show notes or contact us at hello at behindthenife.org. Applications are due February 13th. Hey there, listeners, and welcome to Behind the Knife's Pediatric Surgery Journal Review Podcast. Today, we will discuss the workup and management of a patient with Hirschsprung's disease and break down the specific operative and pathology guidelines. This is Amanda Jensen from Riley Children's in Indianapolis. I am the current Pediatric Surgery Senior Fellow. Today, I have with me Dr. Brian Gray. Hey, everyone. I'm Brian Gray. I'm the Pediatric Surgery Fellowship Program Director here at Riley Hospital for Children. We want to make sure you have an excellent toolbox for the management of Hirschsprung's disease. And Manisha Badia, who is one of the general surgery residents at Indiana University. Hey, y'all. I'm Manisha. I'm one of the IU general surgery residents and just wrapped up my research years as the AMPATH Global Surgery Fellow. Whether you're a medical student, resident, pediatric surgery fellow, or attending, we want you to have access to some of the most relevant operative Hirschsprung's articles in pediatric surgery. Our focus will be on standardized operative and pathologic reporting, as well as challenges in the transition zone. All right, Manisha, why don't you start us off with a little intro? So I wanted to start off with a case to help us frame the rest of our conversation. Let's say we have a 48-hour-old newborn who presents with poor feeding and non-bloody, non-bilious emesis. He's never had a bowel movement. We perform a rectal exam and it reveals a normal anal opening and we interrogate the rectum with a Q-tip and we find that there is some stool evacuated upon inspection. We obtain a KUB which shows dilated loops of bowel throughout with no free air. We're suspicious of bowel obstruction. So Manisha, with all this information about the patient, what should be on your, on your differential diagnosis? High on my differential would be Hirschsprung's disease, given that delayed passage of meconium beyond the first 24 hours of life. This is present in approximately 90% of the time. Other etiologies of neonatal bowel obstruction would be intestinal atresia, meconium plugging, or imperforate anus. If a baby had history of bilious emesis, I'd be more concerned for potential of malrotation with the presence of volvulus, in which I'd obtain an upper GI to further evaluate. Other common causes to think about would be adhesions, abdominal tumors, hernias, and intestinal stenosis. Amanda, how are we going to work this baby up? 
So for this particular scenario, we would get a water-soluble contrast enema to evaluate for distal obstruction and etiology in this patient. Now, give, given the scenario presented, I'm suspicious, as you said, mentioned, for Hirschsprung's disease. And with the contrast enema in a child with uh, Hirschsprung's, the affected segment will be small caliber with proximal dilation. Additionally, there will be delayed evacuation of the administered contrast. Lastly, depending on the age of diagnosis, one might also observe an abnormal rectosigmoid ratio. Normal children have a rectum that is larger than the sigmoid, but in children with Hirschsprung's disease, we find that the sigmoid is significantly larger than the rectum. And if there's a late diagnosis, one may also see fasciculations or sawtoothing uh, in the aganglionic segment. The contrast enema is 65 to 80% sensitive and 65 to 100% specific. If the BE is concerning for Hirschsprung's, I would then start irrigations on the baby and I would proceed with the suction rectal biopsy. The goal is to obtain a pathologic diagnosis based on the absence of ganglion cells in the submucosal and myenteric plexus along with hypertrophic nerves. And this can be determined with the use of H&E staining as well as calretinin staining. Excellent, Amanda. So that's a great synopsis of our imaging workup and what you might find on our pathologic biopsy. Uh, now take us through the technique of obtaining your suction rectal biopsy. Okay, for suction rectal biopsies, these are partial thickness of the mucosa and submucosa, and they can be performed at the bedside. Our goal is to obtain a series of biopsies, usually three, and we typically take them posteriorly and approximately one and a half centimeters proximal to the dentate line. We typically perform these for infants less than one year of age. If an infant presents greater than one year of age, we would typically take them to the operating room for a rectal biopsy, full thickness. Great. Thanks, Manisha. Amanda, what kind of results are going to take you to the operating room for Hirschsprung's disease? So when reviewing the pathology results, I'm looking for a few specific things to ensure I have an adequate biopsy and result. Veris et al. created guidelines for synoptic reporting of surgery and pathology in Hirschsprung's disease in 2019. For diagnostic rectal biopsies, they recommended pathology reports to include adequacy of the sample, presence or absence of ganglion cells, presence or absence of submucosal nerve hypertrophy, defined as three or more submucosal nerves greater than 40 micrometers thick in one high power field. Again, I'll say that one more time because that was a mouthful. Um, the presence or absence of submucosal nerve hypertrophy, defined as three or more submucosal nerves greater than 40 micrometers thick in one high power field, and the presence or absence of enterocolitis. If additional testing was completed, the results of the calretinin immunohistochemistry or the acetylcholinesterase uh, histochemistry may impact management. Great review. Okay, Amanda, let's say your suction rectal biopsy shows no submucosal tissue. What would you do there? So in this scenario, I would be concerned that we did not get an adequate biopsy or potentially that the depth of our suction rectal biopsy gun was not deep enough. So for this scenario, I would re-biopsy the child. Great. Perfect answer. You need to make sure that we get an adequate biopsy before we go to anything more permanent for the child. And I've seen it more than once where we just don't get enough tissue and the biopsy isn't deep enough. So unfortunately, you have to eat a little crow and go back talk to the family again and redo a biopsy. So let's say you go back, you do your next biopsy, and it demonstrates the absence of ganglion cells, but they do say that the biopsy is an adequate tissue specimen. What's your next plan? 
prior to any operation, I'd make sure the child had been appropriately resuscitated with IV fluids and continue with rectal decompression with rectal irrigation three times a day. I'd start teaching the family on how to do the irrigations themselves. Once they're ready for operative repair, the goal of management is to remove the agglionic bowel and reconstruct the intestinal tract. This is done by bringing normally innervated bowel that has circumferential ganglion cells down to the anus while preserving normal sphincter function. Techniques most commonly performed for Hirschsprungs include Swenson, Yancey Suave, or the Duhamel procedures. This is a great time to discuss the various guidelines for the operative report and the pathology. So the operative report should include if the operation was performed open, laparoscopically, robotically, or transanally. The report should also include the length of the segment of resected bowel, frozen section results of any biopsies, and proximal margin. In this child's case, we performed a Swenson. Regarding surgical reporting, one should include surgical technique, regarding open versus MIS approaches, variations on ostomies, specific type of pull-through, and any details on prior operations if it is a redo surgery. Also, one should note the locations of all biopsy sites, placement of ostomies, site of the anastomosis, length of bowel disease, anastomosis distance to dentate line, and length of muscular cuff when performing a Yancey Suave, or length of the retained aganglionic segment and distance of the anastomosis from the dentate line and length of pouch and type of anastomotic technique if performing a duomel. Okay. Now let's say that your suction rectal biopsies were insufficient or this child presented with chronic constipation at 12 months of life. What would be the next step? At one year of age, single full thickness biopsy is preferable to suction rectal biopsies. Because this is under anesthesia and we can see the dentate line, we can take five millimeter biopsies, one and a half centimeters proximal to the dentate line. We can divide this biopsy for enzyme histochemistry and formalin fixed paraffin embedded histology. The pathology should include the sample's adequacy and whether ganglion cells were present along the hypertrophic nerves. Okay, so what's the last way that we might be able to obtain biopsies, particularly for a neonate who presented obstructed and required a more urgent operation? So this patient would likely require a leveling ostomy. When I would write that report, I would include the location of each biopsy obtained, distance from the last biopsy, frozen section results on each biopsy, location of the radiologic transition zone, and gross transition zone if visible, and the pathologic transition zone, and the length of bowel resected. The pathology report should also include adequacy of the tissue and the presence of ganglion cells. Great. This is a nice segue into the pathology guidelines themselves. So please tell me about the pathology reporting guidelines for these operations because there's some new data out there. Well, before we talk about the pathology reporting, I think it's important to discuss the preparation of the specimen. So before we talk about the pathology reporting, I think it's important to discuss the preparation of the specimen. To ensure well-oriented sections of the entire circumference, a 0.5 centimeter transverse full thickness strip should be removed from the proximal end. And this section may be divided into two or three linear segments if the diameter is large. And these sections should be assessed for a transition zone. Dr. Gray, do you do anything specific when you send the specimen to pathology for frozen sections? Anything different for permanent sections? Other than to go out and get a sandwich while I'm waiting for pathology? 
So I think that the important point you're getting at here, Amanda, is you have to think about the difference between a frozen section and a permanent section. If you are going to go on the information from a frozen section in order to, say, decide where your transition zone starts and ends and where you have good bowel, you really have to be able to trust that pathologist and trust the information that they're giving you. If there's any question about your frozen section, then I would recommend not resecting bowel and not pulling through because the worst thing you can do is do a bad pull through into a Hirschsprung uh, specimen or into a transition zone. Uh, so if that's the case that you can't necessarily trust your frozen section because you're either in a resource limited area or your pediatric pathologist is out at the golf course today or for really any reason, or maybe it just looks funny, then the safest thing to do is to take some serial permanent biopsies and do a diverting proximal stoma, like an ileostomy, in order to assure that you're going to be able to have the patient eat and stool and grow while you wait for your permanent specimens to come back. At that point, you'd have your official answer for where the good bowel is, where is the transition zone, and where is the Hirschsprung's bowel. So you can make your full operative plan for when you go back next time. All right. We can once again reference the Veris et al. guidelines for the actual patholo pathologic reporting for Hirschsprung's. For distal bowel resections, pathology reports are required to include the type of pull-through performed, portion of the colon resected with total length, length of the mucosal sleeve, if it's a Yancey Suave, and positions of intraoperative biopsy sites, length of the aganglionic segment, neuromuscular anatomy at the proximal surgical margin, and if there is active enterocolitis. In these specimens, the pathologist will comment on partial circumferential aganglionosis, myenteric hypoganglionosis, or submucosal nerve hypertrophy. The resection should be performed at least, at least five centimeters proximal to ganglionic leveling biopsy, and the entire proximal resection margin should be evaluated to reduce the likelihood of transition zone pull-through. In other words, you should have a donut as a specimen. For an ostomy takedown and closure, the pathology report should also include the total length of bowel, presence or absence of stenosis, a ganglionic segment or transition zone, and neuromuscular anatomy at the proximal surgical margin. Great. So why are these guidelines so important? What's the risk of completing the pull-through without pathology results or even incomplete pathology? The biggest risk for any patient undergoing a pull-through procedure is persistent obstructive symptoms or other complications. This could be a result of a transition zone pull-through. And honestly, for me, the idea of a transition zone is somewhat complex. It's defined as this junction between the neuroanatomically normal ganglionic colon and the aganglionic segment. But like, what does that mean? The transition zone can be estimated with a contrast enema, but we have to ensure there's concordance between the radiologic transition zone and the histologic transition zone. Today, when there's availability, the standard management is to use frozen section assessment of the colonic serosal or full thickness biopsies to help define the transition zone. So to further elaborate on this, Thacker et al. published a retrospective review of all patients undergoing a pull-through procedure at Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children in London between 2012 and 2018. In total, 48 patients underwent pull-through with 56% of patients requiring a stoma prior to their definitive pull-through, most commonly because of the presence of gross abdominal distension despite irrigations. 
The median age of pull-through is six months with 92% undergoing a duomel procedure. The median transition zone length was 1.27 centimeters, but 23% had a transition zone length greater than five centimeters. In total, three patients had a transition pull-through, none of which had frozen pathology performed. In the literature, it appears that 14 to 18% of pull-throughs include a transition zone. That's extremely high. Wow, that's a big number. Uh, so we really need to think about that when we're uh, considering how we look at our biopsies and what we use to make our operative decision-making. So let's talk about another paper. Uh, Coyle and colleagues published the extent of the transition zone in Hirschsprung's disease back in 2019. There are no agreed upon criteria defining the histologic transition zone in Hirschsprung's. Widely coded characteristics include hypertrophic nerve trunks and partial circumference and glenglionosis. In total, 12 patients were included. All but one had their diagnosis confirmed by sexual rectal biopsy. The patients typically underwent their pull-through at three-plus months old with medium age of five months, and operative repair was done once colonic decompression was achieved with saline irrigations. Authors collected the pathologic specimens to analyze. They defined transition zone bowel as bowel with the presence of hypoplastic ganglia, presence of submucosa or myenteric hypertrophic nerve trunks, or the presence of ectopic ganglia. They define long segment disease if the anganglionic colon plus transition zone was greater than 20 centimeters. The authors are blinded to patient pathology and they compared the Hirschsprung's bowel with that of normal bowel. For 11 of the 12 patients, a segment of hypoganglionic bowel separated the aganglionic and normal ganglionic colon. Then they divided patients by extent of disease. Those with rectosigmoid disease had a median of five centimeters of aganglionosis with a median transition zone of six centimeters. Those patients with long segmented disease measuring a median of 16 centimeters, the median length of transition zone of 13 centimeters, they recommended extended resection of a minimum of five centimeters beyond the most stigmal distal ganglionic intraabdominal biopsy an intraoperative histologic examination of the proximal resection margin to minimize transition zone pull-through. So really the big takeaways from this article were that the radiologic transition zone was consistently more distal than the histologic transition zone. So the use of frozen sections intraoperatively should be a mandatory component of pull-through operations. And lastly, the longer segment Hirschsprung's disease tend to have longer transition zones. All right, Manisha, that was a great synopsis of what we learned here. I think we might make a pediatric surgeon out of you yet. We want to make sure whether or not we can trust our biopsies, whether or not frozen or permanent. We want to make sure there's accurate reporting from our pathologists. Surgically, we want to make sure we give the pathologist a full circumferential donut of bowel. And then we want to look at our biopsies to see is there ganglionosis or aganglionosis? Do we have hypertrophic nerves? In the Hirschsprung segment, there should be increased acetylcholinesterase and decreased calretinin staining. And then we want to make sure that we do a pull-through of at least five centimeters past the end of the transition zone. However, in the last paper I mentioned to you, they made sure to tell us that for a longer segment disease, consider a transition zone uh, of more than five centimeters. Thus, we need to take a little bit longer bowel before we put it back together. Well, we hope you enjoyed this journal review of Hirschsprung's disease. Until next time, I'm Dr. Gray from Riley Children's. And I'm Amanda Jensen, Senior Fellow at Riley Children's. And I'm Anish Bhatia, Global Surgery Fellow and General Surgery Resident at Indiana University. All right, y'all, remember, dominate the day. 
Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.